Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. our guest speaker who is very familiar with Israel and the Middle East. He's in the middle of an exciting project in Jordan that I'm sure he'll tell you about. Please welcome a good friend and an excellent teacher, Dr. Stephen Collins. Well, it's really good to be here, and what we're going to do tonight is have class. I would actually, um, I, I am technologically challenged. I would much rather have a huge blackboard up here with an old-fashioned piece of chalk. But um, it's terrible on your ears. So what we're going to do tonight is I'm going to take you through uh, the latest. When We just got back just a few weeks ago, a couple of months ago, and... Um, this is, was our fifth season of excavation at Tal al-Hammam in Jordan, the site we believe is biblical Sodom. And uh, we have some things to show you that not too many people have seen yet. A lot of the scholars haven't even seen it. So um, let's just do it, all right? Here we go. Now, of course, it's me, right? The old professor. So we've got to do a little academic work here. So I hope you have your Bible handy. We're going to run through some Bible verses, and uh, we'll also throw it up on the screen so you can see it. Why is biblical geography important? It's important because it always is the foundation of the story. Because every single story in the Bible, whether it's Old Testament or New Testament, is what I call a serial geography. All the stories. Think about the Exodus. All the places that the Exodus itineraries take us from one place to another, over and over again, place to place. And then the story plays out from location to location. You never have a story in the Bible. If you'll check it carefully, you will never have a story in the Bible that is not tied to a place. So how important is place? It's extremely important. Because God not only chooses to do certain things, but He chooses to do things in certain places. Place is always important. So, when we read the Bible... We're looking at serial geographies as God takes us from place to place. Now, there's one significant fact that's been overlooked by a lot of scholars, and in my interaction with the academic community over the past, oh, five, six, seven years on the, on the location of Sodom, uh, we've had this argument with many scholars, but we always win it because this is a fact that is indisputable. Ancient Near Eastern writers, which of course includes the Bible writers, They never, ever invent fictitious geographies. They just don't. So whether or not the characters invented or used by the Genesis writer are fact or fiction, these stories are 
layered over the real world geography of the Near East. And the writers are intimately familiar with the geography. They're talking about places they know. They've been there. They've seen it. They've experienced it. They've had the sights and the smells. So there's an intimate relationship between the writers and their geography. Further, whether Genesis stories were written during the Bronze Age. Now, comprende Bronze Age, huh? What is that? Um, I think you got to put it in biblical terms to really kind of grasp onto it. The Middle Bronze Age would be the time of Abraham. Okay, so just kind of latch onto that. The Late Bronze Age would be the time of Moses and Joshua. Right? The Iron Age would be the time of King David and King Solomon. So I don't want you to be f- afraid of these terms, okay? And you don't have to worry about dates. Just hang out with Bible characters and you'll be okay. All right. Now, whether these stories are written during the Bronze Age, this would be what we call the maximalist view. That is, if you're a maximalist, which I are, a maximalist is somebody who believes that the maximum amount of material in the Bible is factual. It's true. A minimalist, on the other hand, would believe that a minimal amount of information in the Bible is true. Okay. So, whether you're a maximalist, which means that these stories of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, these all happened really in the Bronze Age. Okay. So we would say they're true stories. They happened historically in the time frame that the Bible, in which the Bible places them. All right? But if you believe that, if you're a minimalist, you would think that these stories were invented or made up during the Iron Age by later Israelite writers trying to justify, mainly justify their existence in the land, their ownership of the land of Canaan. But in fact, whether you're a minimalist or a maximalist, these towns and villages that are described are real locations, whether they are actual thriving cities or whether they're just trying to explain the existence of piles of ruins. All right, now, if these descriptions of living Bronze Age sites, if that's what they are, then the stories are authentic. If they're descriptions of ruins still visible during the Iron Age, then they are still geographically authentic. We can't get away from it. This is not a bunch of myths and legends. This is real geography, including the locations of Sodom and Gomorrah. That's an important point. Now, people always ask me, okay, how do you go about identifying a biblical site? You look at a Bible map. If you have your Bible there, you look at the back, you look at the maps. You see cities, towns, and villages all over the landscape. How do we decide where these biblical towns and villages are located? How do we put them on the maps? Well, we do it by what we call data points. In other words, it might say of a particular town like Jerusalem, 
it's north of Bethlehem or it's near Mount Zion or it's near the Kidron Valley. It's near this river. It's left of here or right of there. Geographical data points. Okay? Now, this is my top ten. If you take the top 40, I'm not going to do 40 for you. I'm just going to give you the top ten. If you take the top ten biblical sites mentioned in the Old Testament and you run the data on each one, how many data points does it take from the biblical text to identify each site? Here's what we get. Bet Shemesh has eight data points. Azekah, eight. Timnah, nine. Jezreel, nine. Jericho, ten. Hebron, ten. Shechem, twelve. I, twelve. Jerusalem comes in at number 18. How did we get from two? Well, the numbers got mixed up here. That's interesting. But guess what? Sodom is number one. There is more geographical data in the text to locate Sodom than there is to locate Jerusalem. So therefore, I find it interesting that Sodom never winds up on the maps and all these other sites do. Well, there's also the bottom five, and there they are. But these are on the maps. With three data points, we put it on the map. With four data points, we put it on the map. But with 25 data points for Sodom, it hardly ever makes it on anybody's map. Why? Because most scholars still are insistent that this story is a myth. The cities are mythical. The story never happened. The characters are not real. The fire from the sky is not real. The location itself is not real. It's all fabricated. That's still the primary, uh, the dominant view. Now, what I found very interesting, though, is that most of the explorer scholars of the 19th century who investigated this biblical geography, they actually went around on horseback with their Bible across the the saddle horn, going from place to place to place, finding, following the biblical text and finding biblical locations. Sometimes they spent years doing this and wrote huge multi-volume works on biblical geography. Yet while the modern scholars have mostly located Sodom and Gomorrah toward the south end of the Dead Sea, all of these 19th century explorer scholars located it north of the Dead Sea for very good reasons. Here's a map from the late 19th century, a Bible map, in fact, out of an old Bible. There's, do you see it? The plain of the five cities. There are the cities of the plain. Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim. Now, how did they put it there? They carefully followed the Genesis geography. They paid attention to the text. Now, okay, being a little little facetious here. How did the 20th century scholars then get Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities of the plain toward the south end of the Dead Sea? How did they do that? They completely ignored the geography of Genesis. That's how they did it. The primary culprit, though, is this guy. William Foxwell Albright was the most powerful scholar, archaeological scholar of the 20th century. And he put Sodom and Gomorrah toward the south end of the Dead Sea. Why? 
because the area looks like it was destroyed by God. He put it under the water at the south end of the Dead Sea. Why did he do that? No good reason. He ignored the biblical text and he's caused a problem. Now, we also notice this. 100% of scholars, 100% who give us a detailed evaluation of Genesis 13, put the cities of the plain north of the Dead Sea. 100%. On the other hand, 100% of scholars who put the cities of the plain toward the south end of the Dead Sea fail to do any kind of analysis of Genesis 13. So placing the cities of the plain north of the Dead Sea is just a straightforward reading of the Hebrew text. Okay? But if you're going to put it toward the south end of the Dead Sea, what I say is you may as well be reading the text upside down because it makes absolutely no sense as we go through the geography. Now, real quickly, why Genesis 13? It's the only narrative passage in the Old Testament that marks out the location of Sodom by taking us from data point to data point through a specific geography for the purpose of taking us to Sodom. All right? Now, real quickly, let's just go over the the text. Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev. Lot went with him from the Negev. He went from place to place until he came to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai. Lot looked up and saw the whole plain of the Jordan, was well watered like the garden of Yahweh, like the land of Egypt toward Zoar. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out toward the east. Abram lived in the land of Canaan, while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. Now in there, the word plain appears three times. There it is again. Plain, plain, and plain. All three of those words are the translation of the same word, but actually none of the Hebrew words that mean plain, low place, or valley are used here. Here are the Hebrew words, Bika, Emek, Mishor, and Arabah. Here are words that are used. By the way, the number two there is a, is a phonetic equivalent, phonetic equivalent, phonetic sign. Um, these are the words, the geographical terms in Hebrew for valleys and plains. This isn't one of them. The word translated here is a completely different word, and it doesn't even have a geographical meaning at all. In fact, it's the Hebrew word kikar, which means a circle. If you go to Jerusalem today and you drive in the roundabout, do you like roundabouts? Drive those traffic circles? You know what they call a traffic circle, a roundabout in Jerusalem? A kikar. Okay? That's the Hebrew term. Well, why? Because that's what it means. Talent of silver, talent of gold, a flat circular disc of metal, or a flat circular loaf of bread, a tortilla in essence. The word kikar is also found in every other Near Eastern language. It's found in Akkadian. It's found in Ugaritic. It's found even in the Egyptian language. In the Egyptian, literally, it means to draw a circle in the sand with a stick. It's a circle. What does it mean? The kikar of the Jordan. What is it? Well, it's the valley north of the Dead Sea. There's a circular valley north of the Dead Sea, the Jordan Valley, And remember, it's the cities of the Sodom and Gomorrah are the cities of the Kikar. Not plain, Kikar. And it's the plain or the Kikar of the Jordan, the circle of the Jordan, the cities of the disk, the disk of the Jordan. Here it is. 
The Jordan River comes down and widens out at the north end of the Dead Sea. You can look at it and see that it's a disk. You look at it from a different angle, you can see it. It's a disk. It widens out into a circular valley, and this is where it's located. It's north of the Dead Sea because Hayarden, the word Jordan in Hebrew, the Hayarden never ever refers to anything other than the Jordan River proper. And Hayarden never includes any part of the Valley of Salt or the Valley of Sidim, the Dead Sea Valley. Never ever. The Bible says that it ends at the mouth of the Jordan below Pisgah. And if you look at the geography, there's the Jordan River. The Bible says it ends at the Bay of the Dead Sea, at the mouth of the Jordan below Pisgah. That's the extent of the Jordan Valley. Therefore, the cities of the Jordan Circle would have to be in the Jordan Valley associated with the river itself. So here are the cities of the plain. This is where they should be located. And by the way, the archaeological maps before our research and excavations began had nothing in this region. Nothing. Nobody had ever looked at it seriously. None of the archaeological works had ever published anything from this area. It was just a blank. It's no longer a blank because the cities are actually there. Gee, isn't it interesting? You follow the biblical text and what do you find? Hmm. You find that the cities actually do exist. Now, I want to show you something interesting. If you look at all of the trade routes in the area... There are two major intersections. Do you see it? There are two major intersections. There's Jericho. Jericho sits on the major intersection on the west side of the Jordan River. There is a major city at that particular intersection that has never been examined up until very recently. There are also other cities around that, all, by the way, every single one of these dates to the time of Abraham. So we have all of these sites, Tel Blibel, Mustin, Imreen, and Kafrain. We have all these other sites surrounding this very large site, which sits right at the intersection. And it's Tal al-Hammam. This is the site we identified several years ago and have been excavating as the site of Sodom. It is the sort of the big dog on the block. It is the big site in the region. Now, the writer assumes that Sodom is the biggest city because it's always listed first. It's the only one mentioned by itself. And King Bera of Sodom is chief of all the other kings, and he's also the one that has a voice. None of the other kings have a voice. He talks. He hangs out with Abraham. He goes with Abraham to visit Melchizedek of Jerusalem and so on, if you follow the story. So Sodom is very important. It's the largest one. So you would assume that if you were looking for the largest Bronze Age city on the eastern Jordan disk to be identified as Sodom, that you would actually go to the eastern side of the Jordan River, north of the Dead Sea, and look and see what the biggest city is, and put two and two together, and voila, it's either there or it isn't. It either exists or it doesn't. Well, guess what? It does exist. Here it is, Tal al-Hammam. It is the largest Bronze Age city on the eastern Jordan disk. It's a kilometer from one side to the other. How, well, how big is that compared to other sites? It is ten times bigger than Bronze Age Jerusalem. It is ten times bigger than Bronze Age Jericho. Okay? That's how big it is. Here it is from Mount Nebo. Remember, Moses stood on Mount Nebo, looked over into the Promised Land. Well, from Mount Nebo, Moses could even see the ruins of Tal el-Hammam located right there 
it's a kilometer from one end to the other. That's six-tenths of a mile. It's a long ways. It's a huge site. This is the way our site looks, looking uh, to the mostly to the northeast. You can see that we have a, what's called the Tau, the lower Tau, the lower ruin on that part, and it's about 750 by 750 meters. And then we have the upper Tau, the upper city, and it is about 300 by 350 meters. That's about how many football fields? If you say a meter is a yard, approximately, that's a pretty big place. All right. Now, the story of Abraham belongs to the Middle Bronze Age. There's no doubt about the geography. And I've done the geography with you before, so we just kind of raced through it. And let's look at this. Where does Abraham belong? He belongs in the Middle Bronze Age. Some say in the Iron Age, but I doubt it. Most scholars will not go with that. They'll put him earlier. Genesis 10 is going to take us all the way back because we have Sodom uh, in the early part of Genesis, in Genesis 10. It's going to take us back probably at least to the early Bronze Age, back way before the time of Abraham and Lot. So Sodom and the other cities of the Jordan Disc would have occupations dating from at least the early Bronze Age down into the Middle Bronze Age at the time it was destroyed. So here's the right time frame for Sodom and the cities of the Jordan Disc. So it's not just looking for place, not just geography, but also chronology. Got to have both. So here we are. At Hamam, we have the early Bronze Age city. We have an intermediate Bronze Age city, which follows on. We have the middle Bronze Age city from the time of Abraham. And then we have about 700 years later, an Iron Age II village built on top. Here's the occupational profile from the ground up. Tal Hamam is occupied for at least 2,000 years, probably much longer than that, but right now, the extent of the excavation that we've done, it was occupied at least 2,000 years from the early Calcolithic or the Copper Stone Age all the way through the Middle Bronze Age. And then we have a 5 to 7 century occupational gap. Here's, uh, here are some of the features around. Let's, let me take you around the site. Here are all the wadis. Here's all the water in the area. Here's the occupational platform of Sodom. Here's the urban footprint. Here are the agricultural fields. Remember, it was the well-watered plain of the Jordan. Here we have our cave and shaft tombs. You've got to have a necropolis. This is where they bury all their dead people. You've got a big city. You've got to bury the dead people somewhere. So that's where they bury them. We now know where all the burials are. And these are the dolmen fields. Um, these are funerary monuments, but they're actually ritual monuments. Each family, I think, builds one of these big stone monuments. I'll show you some pictures in a moment. Now, here are our excavation fields. Going to introduce you to our excavation. This is the lower tell. Here's the upper tell. And we have all of our fields laid out. Why do we do this? So we can say on the telephone, uh, where are you? I'm in field LA. <laughs> or I'm in field LF. All right, so we can put everything that we're excavating into a spatial context. And we can find each other in the process. The site is so large. This is what the early Bronze Age city looks like. We have a city wall with many towers. 
And you can see the yellow portion here. These are the portions that we've excavated thus far. So you can see that uh, even though we can see much of this on the surface, by the way, the red part is traceable and visible on the surface much of the time. That's why we can see it there. The other part, the purple part, is extrapolated, and that'll be true with each one of these. In the Intermediate Bronze Age, we have basically the same city being used, city wall being used over and over again. In the Middle Bronze II period is when things really pick up. Now, this is the time of Abraham and Lot. Here's the big rampart around the lower city, the big earthen rampart around the up, protecting the upper city, and we have temples and monumental complexes and houses and many towers around the city wall and also uh, a massive palace on the upper tell that we think belonged to King Bera of Sodom, which is pretty exciting. Here we have all the excavated areas for the Middle Bronze Age. You can see that we it looks fairly extensive, but actually uh, the site is so large that even when we open up what we feel are large areas, they still are pretty small compared to the whole site. Then, of course, the Iron Age city just simply is confined to the upper tell. We have a monumental gateway, and uh, I'll show you in a moment that we think it's also connected somehow with uh, the time of King Solomon. And then in the Roman and Byzantine period, we have a monumental structure on the lower tell and some sort of a garrison, uh, some sort of a little fort on the upper tell, but not much there. Just kind of an overview of the site. You can see we have two springs. We have a hot spring, 90-degree water. We have a cold spring. So we have hot and cold running water. And um, we also have plenty of water coming down from the wadis. That's a wall. We don't even know what it is yet. Uh, the, the, the city keeps getting bigger every year. and We have this gigantic wall running in that area. We have no idea what it is. But we know the city wall areas in this, uh, in this position. You can see the city walls. And then we have... an gateways and monumental towers. We have a monumental complex right in the middle of the lower tell and this massive palace on the upper tell. And all of these uh, are either identifiable on the surface or have been at least partially excavated. Then for the Iron Age city, we have the monumental buildings and the monumental gateway. Here's some of the, the Bronze Age. You can see the Bronze Age stratum there. It has a meter on the upper tell. It has a meter of black ash and debris. That's from the destruction of Sodom. Here we see the excavation of a particular house. You can see the Middle Bronze Age jars, and you can see that blackish ash. We love to find these things because these are Middle Bronze Age piriform juglets. They're only made during the Middle Bronze Age, during the time of Abraham. So whenever you see one of these, you know where you are in time. And by the way, we always date all of our strata by the pottery. It's the pottery that gives us the date because of the form. It's always changing over time, and so it's very easy to see it, uh, see the date of it when we examine it. Now, this is down on the lower tell, and you've never seen this before. Some of you have probably seen some of those other photos, but here's the lower tell. Now, that's the foundation of a Middle Bronze Age house. What's interesting is that on the lower part of the city, which is the largest part of the city, What you're walking on when you're walking on the surface is the terminal destruction of Sodom. That is the layer, the time period that was destroyed in the time of Abraham and Lot. Okay, So that's pretty exciting. This foundation of a house is 
associated with this city wall. This wall is four meters thick. There is a street that runs between them. Now that street actually goes from left to right. We've dug most of it out here. We left this little strip of the street uh, to preserve it uh, so we could uh, photograph it and continue to analyze the components of that of that plastery stuff that forms the surface. So Tal al-Hammam was continuously occupied from at least the Chalcolithic period until EMB. For this season, this was very exciting. For the very first time, we saw the Chalcolithic. Just a few weeks ago, that's it. And then, of course, it goes right into the early Bronze I period. They built right over the top of it. Now, if you don't, if you're not into archaeology, this will be a snoozer. If you're into archaeology, then this is going to be really exciting. And I'll tell you why. If you, go, if you go across the river to Jerusalem, I mean to, uh, well, Jerusalem as well, to Jericho, if you go from the Chalcolithic period, from about 3500 B.C., say, or 4000 B.C., if you go from there up to the Bronze Age, to the Middle Bronze Age, to the time of Abraham, you will be going through, digging through about 40 to 50 vertical feet. Okay? Why? Because a city is built, a city is destroyed. Unoccupied. What happens to a mud brick city when it's destroyed, not occupied? Melts. Okay? Somebody comes and builds over the top of that. Somebody comes along and destroys it. Sits for 50 or 100 years. What happens to all the mud brick? Melts. Do it again, over and over and over, and up the tells go, up the mounds go, higher and higher. So you dig through all of this. To get about 2,000 years or 3,000 years of occupation at Jericho, you have to go through about 40 to 50 vertical feet. At Hammam, we can do exactly the same thing. We can go through exactly the same two or 2,500 years or 3,000 years in five feet. Why? Because Tal el Hammam, Sodom, was never unoccupied. It was continuously occupied for all of that time and no gaps. Okay? Now, if you look at this, by the way, you can always see gaps in the archaeological record of your site, in the strata, because if you have a gap in occupation, you get wind-blown sediment and water-borne sediment, rains and so on. And so what happens? Everything just kind of slumps and just kind of melts away. At Tal al-Hammam, what I'm going to take you through here is about a meter and a half, about five, six feet of vertical cut. It's called a balk, okay, a section or a balk face. I'm going to take you through about 3,000 years of history here in a very short space, and we're not going to see one single particle of wind-blown or water-blown sediment. Why? Continuously occupied. Here we go. Calcolithic period. Calcolithic house. Early Bronze Age 1. Early Bronze Age house wall. 
Now, at some point, they decided to cover over all of this early stuff and build a city wall. So they covered over all of this area with engineered fill. This is not erosional fill. This is engineered fill. Purposefully laid layers of dirt for the purpose of building up over these old houses. The city fathers came along and they said, we want to build a city wall. We're condemning all your houses. Knock them down. We're going to cover them over and we're going to build our fortifications. So they built the first foundation of the first city wall. And outside of that, they built a street. This street is at least 16 meters, say about 40 feet wide so far. We haven't seen the end of it, actually. And so there's the early Bronze Age II street from about 3000 B.C. Then they had to refurbish it. Maybe an earthquake shake knocked the city wall down or broke it enough where they had to fix it. So they decided, we've got to rebuild it. So they rebuilt the E.B. city wall. And they used it again. And then they continually used that street and that city wall, continuously used it until 1800 B.C. In 1800 B.C., in the Middle Bronze Age, the city fathers came in and decided to bury all of this with a massive fortification system, a new fortification system. And they covered all of this with engineered fill, and there it is. They're just piling stuff up, mud bricks, sand, dirt, ash, anything they can get their hands on to fill in the gap. And then on the top of it all, they cover it over with mud brick structures. And we'll look uh, at this more in a moment. So there it is. Several thousand years of occupation in a very short space, all because of the lack of inoccupation. Continuously occupied. Here are dolmens. These are these big monuments, huge stones. These cap, some of these capstones are several tons. And uh, this is dolmen actually uh, 78, not 73. And here's the chamber inside of it once we pulled the cap off. And what's interesting about this assemblage of pottery, this is 2,000 years of ceramics inside this one tomb over depositing over and over and over again in fact if you divide the number of pottery vessels over the time frame of the use of this funerary monument you get the number 40 or approximately 40 every 40 years they crack this thing open put a new deposit in it a bone maybe a leg bone maybe a rib of an ancestor with a little vessel, maybe with some perfume or something in it, and they covered it back over and went on for another 40, maybe another 40 years. By the way, what's fun about speculating about dolmens, and we've got some major research going on with it, is that there's no writing associated with them. Nobody really knows what they are, so anything you say cannot be held against you. (laughs) So you can speculate just about all you want because nobody really knows. We do know one thing, though. They were used over a long period of time. Here's one of the pictures, beautiful pictures. If you come excavate with us, we guarantee you're going to find stuff like this all the time or your money back. Just kidding about the money back, but you will find cool stuff. Beautiful bowls. Here's some of the vessels from the dolmen as they were excavated. 
The city of Sodom itself was fortified. There it is, just to remind you, we did this a minute ago, but there it is. Fortifications, massive fortifications. This is the biggest Bronze Age city in the whole region. There's part of the rampart that we excavated a few years ago. And you can see the top of that rampart there and some of the Iron Age city wall built much later. Now, this is from this season. This just happened. Just very... In fact, we're still shaking the sand out of our, out of our boots. Um, there's the early Bronze Age city wall of Sodom. 5.2 meters thick, 17 feet. Inside that is the Middle Bronze II city wall, which is 4 meters thick, about 13 feet thick. Now, I'm going to build it up for you. Here are the Calcolithic houses. And then that EB fill that we talked about. Now, then they built the early Bronze Age 2-3 city wall with that roadway on the outside of it. And then they continued to use it during the next periods all the way down to about 1800 B.C. when they built this monster. So here we have the Middle Bronze 2 city wall and a massive rampart system on the outside, which we think is stepped. Now, this is called in situ line. This red line demarcates what is below the red line is intact. What is above the red line is reconstruction. People ask me, well, what about that floating wall right up there in the very middle of the picture? How do you know that stone wall is floating up there inside the rampart, the mud brick rampart? Well, we don't know it except down where we can excavate, we find some stones that are piled up in a rather odd place and they're not connected to anything. And so as the thing melted away and eroded, guess what? Uh, The stones would just come down slowly, slowly and finally drop wherever they landed. And um, so that's what it looks like. Here it is again. Now, here's here's the sequence. You go back to Genesis chapter 10 and you have this massive early Bronze Age city wall going around it. You go to the time of Abraham and that wall, that first city wall is used continuously all the way down to the time of Abraham. In the time of Abraham, they decided to build a massive fortification system consisting of that city wall. There's the street on the inside. Then they add at least three and possibly four internal stabilizer walls, and they cover the whole thing over with layers of mud brick, making the whole fortification system 33 meters, 100 feet thick. I don't know where 100 feet goes in the auditorium here, but I bet it goes pretty close to the back row. So it's very large. So here it is again. We have some engineered fill. We have that stone foundation. We have our stone stabilizer walls. The whole rest of the thing is built out of mud brick. I love being in New Mexico because when you say mud brick, people understand. I mean, some of you live in mud brick houses. Okay. And by the way, if you live in an adobe house, you still still battle the mud brick wars, right? I mean, it's constant maintenance, especially if you have mud plaster on the outside, right? It's constant. Well, this is what they had to deal with in in antiquity as well. So you understand mud brick. Now, again, there's our in situ line. It's 33 meters thick, 
Now, what's interesting, these lines represent, and these stars represent two layer, two levels. A lower level, where we know it starts, and then the preserved height, and that gives us almost seven and a half meter rise, which means that we, at this point in the wall system, we have a, about a 40% preservation factor. 40% of this thing is still intact after almost 4,000 years. What's fun about this, and when I think about it, I get really excited for next season, because about 200 yards to the west of this location, we have a 35-degree slope that we suspect is almost a 100% of this rampart still preserved. And uh, so next season, guess where one of our trenches is going? Right over the top of that 35-degree slope. So we're pretty excited about that. Well, if you can't get a sense of the size of these city walls, this might help. There's the EB2 city wall with the city gate, by the way. There's one of the city gates from the Genesis 10 period. There's a blockage in the next period. Somebody decided there were too many gates, so they put in a put in a a little wall to block the gate, cover it over. Then they decided to build this middle bronze system, and then they put the street on the inside. You can see the stabilizer walls going down the hill. So I would say archaeologically and geographically, the biggest fortified Bronze Age city on the eastern Jordan disk would be the most likely candidate for biblical Sodom. By the way, it's now... I won't say it's a foregone conclusion for most scholars, but I had the privilege to uh, lecture last week at uh, both Dallas Theological Seminary uh, in in Dallas, obviously, and then in Fort Worth at Southwestern Seminary. And um, uh, Steve Ortiz, the archaeologist at Southwestern, is already using our materials on the location of Sodom as a model in his biblical geography classes as a model for locating biblical cities. So it's pretty exciting to have scholars kind of jumping on board and deciding uh, that they want to use this material. So it's very exciting for us. Now, fact. Bronze Age civilization on the eastern Jordan disk with Tal al-Hammam as its cultural center flourished continuously for 2,000 years. Another fact. This Bronze Age civilization, including Tal al-Hammam, came to an abrupt termination toward the end of the Middle Bronze Age and remained unoccupied for at least the next five centuries. Now, to get the right answers, you must ask the right questions. Here's the operative question at this point. Why did the best watered agricultural land in the entire region remain without cities and towns? for the ensuing five to seven centuries after its destruction in Middle Bronze II, the time of Abraham? You can't answer that question. Cities continued to the east. Rabat Ammon, Ammon. Cities continued to the west. Jerusalem. Cities continued to the north. Der Allah, Pella. 
But right here on this little piece of real estate, only about 25 kilometers across, 16 miles, Bronze Age civilization came to a dramatic, sudden end. And nobody came back to build there or live there or take advantage of the water in the area for the next five to seven centuries. You cannot explain that. Not with plagues, that would affect everybody else as well. Not drought, that would... That would affect everybody else as well. In fact, during the history of Tal al-Hammam, other sites suffered drought. Tal al-Hammam went through the drought just fine because they have on-site water. No problems. But when everybody else was doing fine, they went down. Why did they go down? There's no explanation for this. There's no archaeological explanation for this. Not at this moment. However, there is a rather good biblical explanation. And I think you know what that is. I believe you would find that in Genesis chapter 19. All right. Here are the sites with this profile. It's not just Tal al-Hammam. You remember we have what? Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboim. The word Zeboim is plural, so it's probably at least two sites. We have Tal al-Hammam. We have Tal Kafrain. We have Tal Nimrin. Bible and Musta and a whole bunch of others. They're all there and they're all part of the cities of the plain. Sodom is at Tal Hamam because Tal Hamam satisfies every single biblical criterion. It's almost, uh, it's almost too good to be true. Well, why shouldn't it be if the biblical text is right? Okay. The Sodom narrative carefully marks out a location for the cities of the Kikar, north of the Dead Sea, on the east side of the Jordan River, where, in fact, we do have the ruins of significant-sized Bronze Age cities. A high degree of correspondence like this cannot be mere coincidence, not if we're thinking scientifically. There has to be a correspondence between the text and the ground. This cannot be a coincidence. All right, now. Here we are. All in the right place. It's all in the right time frame. And it has all the right stuff. And it's a home run. Now, you thought it was just about Sodom. But guess what? There's more to the story. You remember that if Sodom is north and east of the Dead Sea, where we've been locating it, this is the same territory where Moses brought the Israelites before they crossed the river to Jericho, right? It's exactly the same territory. In fact, almost all scholars, almost all publications have already identified Tal al-Hammam as Abel Shittim. The place where Moses camped the Israelites on the plains of Moab before they crossed the Jordan River. Now, um, this is interesting because most people don't know. In fact, most of the scholars I've found out don't know what Abel Shatim means. 
If you ask most scholars, what does Abel Shittim mean? Well, it means the meadow of the acacias. No, it doesn't. If they know Hebrew, they ought to know better. Shittim means meadow of the acacias by itself. The word Abel means mourning, as in M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, as in death and destruction. Mourning, a place of mourning. In fact, in the Egyptian records, not just the Bible, in the Egyptian records, the site is just called Abel, the place of mourning. Why would people call this the place of mourning, do you suppose? Hmm. Well, Jericho's there across the river. That's the hill in the foreground, so just so we can identify where we are. We're up on the hill overlooking Tal al-Hammam. If you go to the area and you study it, you actually physically stand on the site, you know that the scholars have always been right about this. We're just confirming it. But the fact is that Moses' command encampment would have been on top because if you're a general, this is where you want to go. This is where you want to be, up on top of everything with a 360 view of everything around you. All right? The, Le- the Levite camera would be there on the lower tail. We'll see it from above in a minute. Then, of course, the Israelite tribal encampments would be all around the outside. Let's look at it from the top. Here's Tal Hamam, command encampment of Moses on top, 100 feet below that. The, Le- the Levite encampment with the tabernacle sitting right, right smack in the middle of it. And around that, the Israelite encampments. Now what's interesting at that location of the tap where I have the tabernacle, if this is the way the encampment was spread, and by the way, you look at it and there's really no other way to do it. This is the way it had to happen. The place where the tabernacle is located, is Tom Winder here? I know he's in the, I know he's out in the lobby at the table. Tom was part of the excavation team, was supervising the excavation of this particular area this last season where this uh, yellow rectangle is. You know what's under that yellow rectangle? Probably, we, we think we have discovered a massive Canaanite sacred precinct and there's a big Canaanite temple right on that location. What is the tabernacle? It's the forerunner of the temple. It has the same structure as the temple in terms of how it's divided up. All right? This is the temple. It becomes the temple of Solomon. So where does God choose to park the tabernacle with the most holy object in the universe at that particular time? Where does he park it? Right on top of ground central of evil where God destroyed the city of Sodom. I think that's just like God. Because you know what? He did exactly the same thing for you and me. Our hearts, the Bible says what? Human heart is on evil continually. But where did God choose to park His Holy Spirit? When you receive Christ based on the blood sacrifice of Jesus, where did God park His Holy Spirit? 
right smack in you. Just like he did here. Put his holy presence right there on ground zero of evil. And he did the same thing for us. Isn't that just like God? Well, not only that, but Talmam may also be Solomon's capital city of the Gilead district. We have 10th century storage jars dated at the time of Solomon. By the way, not even to speak of the fact that we have, we have eyeball to eyeball line of sight to the Mount of Olives. Okay. So it would have been right under Solomon's nose. Here we have our massive monumental gate tower. This is the eastern tower of this massive gate system from the time of Solomon. We have Cypro-Phoenician-style pottery. Who was Solomon's good buddy that helped him build the temple? King Hiram, Hiram of Tyre. A Cypro-Phoenician king. Hmm? Very interesting. So, Tal Hamam is a triple whammy of biblical geography all the way around. So the Bible and the trowel works really well together. We have to do these things together. We cannot go into the field with our trowels only. We must carry the Word of God. Now, I'm going to just run, let this run. I'm going to go through just to show you in the last couple of minutes here, just a little bit from the last few seasons, and we're going to end up with uh, this last season. By the way, while we're, we're running through these photos, anybody here on any of the Tal Hamam excavation seasons? Anybody? Yeah. Ah, yes, yes. I see some. Well, hopefully many more of you will join us. You can see that young and old, we have kids, teenagers. We got people in their 70s and 80s excavating with us. Some That's our hotel headquarters. We have pastors. It's a pastor from California. These are our wonderful facilities out on the site. One of our supervisors. <laughs> you never know who's going to show up on the site. You just never know. We all find it really great stuff. Uh, it's a very artifactually rich site. So you're just finding stuff all the time. That t-shirt sells out every season. <laughs> If you think the IRS requires a lot of paperwork, wait till you become a square supervisor on Tal Hamam. Our photographer, of course, photography is extremely important because everything has to be represented photographically. If you clean that up a bit, it looks a lot better. There you go. That's Danette Square. Danette's here tonight, my wife. She did that little bit of work there as a supervisor. Pottery all the time. This is Middle Bronze Age pottery. Here's some middle here. Here's the foundation of King Bera's palace. That's pretty exciting. The local folks, local kids. This is called the we call this the bean pot. It's a big cauldron. Gotta wash the pottery. You find it, you wash it. And then we call it. We call it every day. Sit at our tables. John uh, Moore, uh, osteologist looking at bones. Here's our trench LA twenty eight. Here's some of our Jordanians from the Department of Antiquities who are also serving on our excavation team. Here's our Trench 28. Here's the foundation of the early Bronze Age city wall. You can see some of the houses here. That street 
is amazing. Look how clean the dirt uh, on top comes off. That's that street that some of the patriarchs would have walked on. It's one of our. This is our 2000. One of our 2005 group, uh, 2010 groups from just a few weeks ago. It's tedious work, and sometimes you have to sit down on the job. <laughs> Pottery is always a big deal. This is part of our Roman structure. Dr. Dave Graves from Cardiff University, or I'm sorry, uh, can't remember the name. Used to be Atlantic Baptist University. Here's a little morning briefing. More of our Jordanian team discussing a few things. Washing pottery. This is from the dolmen. And that's the end of that. And when you get to that point at the end of the day, you can take a quick dip in the Dead Sea before you go to bed as the sun goes down over Jerusalem. Well, thank you for your attention. I know this was a little bit of a geographical lesson tonight. Hopefully you learned a little bit about archaeology and how it works. We'd love for you to come excavate with us. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.